was a lot of fun. Is that how you got started in acting? Was um, theater background? Uh, I how I got started in acting. I think I, I I was for some reason I I had a love. First time I saw uh, something on stage, I thought it was unbelievable. And um, I'm so, sorry, you want to just turn that mic? You can pull that sucker out. Okay. If you want to just try to keep it right in front of your mouth. So um, I used to shuck oysters at the Union Oyster House in Boston after school, you know, and I would spend my money uh, going to theater in Boston, which was pretty amazing theater. I didn't know what I was, I just liked it. And so um, I used to spend my money. My, I think my family was worried about me <laughs> a little bit, but I got to see some awesome theater because uh, they try the plays out in Boston before they go to New York. Oh, of- so you got to see... I got great shows almost before they went down to Broadway. I didn't know what I was seeing, but I saw some great theater. Uh, Richard Harris and Camelot and Anthony Quinn and Zorba the Greek, you know, just classics, which, um, yeah, I don't know where it came from. <laughs> and it just kind of left a mark on you, something you felt like you needed to pursue in a way. I don't, I don't know if I even needed to pursue it, but um, the first chance I got, I said, oh, a play. I didn't think I'll audition. I was young and walked in and auditioned for a play and uh, got a small role, one line, um, and it went from there. Whatever. Was that was your first role in high school, in college? Uh, I guess my first role was in the third grade where I played uh, Bob Cratchit in uh, Christmas Scare. Started off young. Yeah, I still know all my lines. You want me to do something? Yeah, hit me. <laughs> third grade, wow. Uh, um, but yeah, that was my first theater. It was in the Provincetown Theater Company in Massachusetts. Did you ever plan on pursuing that professionally or it kind of just fell into place for you? I think I, I did. I went to LA and, um, um, took acting classes and did, did a little bit of theater and, um, um, had some success. It was a lot of fun. The, the training was awesome. Um, uh, Managed to train with some really unbelievable acting teachers. We're just lucky, and um, and I and then I, I think uh, my attraction to fighting and martial arts and boxing has always been like I like that juice, you know, like that feeling of excitement, and that definitely gives it to you. So I did wander into. Um, uh, Second City one day, and I, there was an audition. I had no business auditioning for Second City, you know. It's like, but I went in there, and um, they actually accepted me. So I got to train at Second City. No intention of being a comedic actor or anything like that. It was just scary. So I go, I think I'll do that, you know. So it was fun. That's almost a skill, being able to go towards the things that you're afraid of. Uh, people, Most people, when they hit a wall and they're like, ah, you know, I have stage fright. Yeah. They're not going to say, oh, I need to go get up on stage to get through that. Yeah. No, it's, um, I think the, in, in terms of the boxing and I, I don't know if you know it, but I'm, I've been a martial arts instructor for 50 years and I've studied so many martial arts, just like crazy studying like seven days a week, that kind of thing. And, um, but so 
that gives me a perspective for boxing because uh, martial arts is so well defined in the physiology and the mechanics, especially some of the higher systems, the pivots, the the way the body moves in an intrinsic way. I I try to bring that sensibility uh, and that knowledge into boxing. So I, I I approach it from a little bit of a a different place, but also I quote my acting teachers all the time in my classes because um, I think something I've learned is that um, the truths or the gems of wisdom that you can pick out of a really good art with a really good teacher or somebody that's really dedicated, they almost always apply to every art, at least mine. So, um, and the reason I'm saying that is because like my improv teacher at Second City used to say, and I say this to my students all the time, follow your fear. That's where the magic is. And, you know, when sometimes people say stuff to you, you go, whoa, that's, I like that. I think I'm going to do that. And, and um, so, and they're so similar, the, the stresses of going into an audition or what it's like to stand across from somebody that wants to punch you in the face. The adrenaline rush and all that, if you let it get you, if you let it take over, it's the same thing. It feels the same, you know. Did you feel like you were more prepared to go into auditions where you had been in the ring with people so the fear wasn't quite the same? I mean, there's no risk of getting knocked out going to an audition. Exactly. Uh, and I'd like to say yes to that, but um, I, I was aware of it. I was going, wow, this is interesting. This feels like looking at this, you know, 190-pound guy that's giving me the evil eyeball that's going to be trying to hit me in a second. And that, that feeling was there. I wish I... I probably could have been more successful to transpose that but I was aware of it and working on it I, I definitely noticed it feels the same um so yeah it gave me a, a step up but I wish I got a little more step up on it was so you could foreign. still feel it kind of creeping in the background yeah yeah it's creeping in the background I, you know you walk into um an audition and um and there's 50 guys that look just like you <laughs> You know, and they're all psyching each other out, just like black belts walking around before a tournament, you know, giving each other little signals and the battle's already begun. And uh, so, um, yeah, it's an experience. And all walking out on an improv stage without a script, you know, that's a scary thing. So I think I'm attracted to that feeling. Well, there's a power in overcoming that, right? There's you you almost get a little edge when you can say, oh yeah, you know, I was nervous to do this. And even if you are continually nervous doing it, you overcome it each time you go through with it. You do, and and uh, different degrees at different times, but when you're successful, you go, yeah, I, I, I handle that. Um, but, uh, and so there's a lot, I think my perspective comes from a lot of different things like theater and overcoming you know, fear, which is something a coach has to um, help people with and uh, to help them deal with the chaos of war. And I use war as a loose term, but it's the fighting arts, war, it's chaos. Things are doing happening that are unexpected. Somebody bumps into your head, you could implode on that or make a quick assessment. So it's up and running, you know, you're up and running no matter what you're doing, whether you're in an audition or you're sparring in the gym, you know, it, it creates chaos that you learn to deal with after a while. In terms of your, your 
fighting career? Was it boxing that came first or did you dive into the mixed martial arts aspect of it? No, I've never done mixed martial arts. I started boxing and martial arts training basically at the same time. And um, it was mostly traditional martial arts. So MMA wasn't around yet. There was there was kind of like the inkling of it was starting to, to happen. A fighter named Benny Aquidas had a school and they were uh, they were practicing this no nonsense, no gloves kind of martial arts. But I came from a more traditional background and that's where I did compete. And um, that was like in the 70s, which was kind of uh, a Camelot time for martial arts, I think, in this country because the masters, the old masters from Japan and China, they were just kind of arriving here <clears throat> and um, they were hardly spoke the language and they were staunch traditionalists in whatever style that they taught. And you didn't deviate. So Americans, I think, at that time had more permission for self-cultivation, I think, during the 70s. You know, people said, oh, I do this, but I, you know, I work at the food bank or I study this and that's just for me. I think, I think people do that less these days, which I think is sad. Less in the sense that they're more honed in on their craft, that it, they're almost absorbed by it in a sense? By their work. By their work. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I remember in those days they were talking about a 20-hour work week. You know, we're getting so efficient. Well, people are up to 60 hours and it just seems more. Oh, you mean work outside of training? Yeah. Just general work? Yeah. Oh, okay. They don't have time, I think, nowadays for just a portion of their lives for self-cultivation. But it's self-cultivation it, in every form, right? Yeah, whatever form it comes in for you that you do something, okay, this is just for me, this isn't to pay the mortgage, I put a certain amount of time, or I think people were more indulgent in those times that way, and in a really good way, I think. Yeah, I mean you could back then you could work a part-time job and pay for school, right? Yeah. And you could you'd be fine. Yeah. You wouldn't have to take out a crazy sum of debt. Mm -hmm. And now you could work full time and still try to go to school and you'd still be in debt. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I think it's a rougher time, and and in those days, <clears throat> you know the the guy that was the butcher in the local store could afford to buy a house, and you know I think it was just a simpler time, but it was also a turbulent time with the Vietnam War, and people were rejecting, you know, the principles of our, our parents, and you know going to demonstrations, and they were after me to go to the Vietnam War, which I wasn't going to do, so. There was a, it was a moment where younger people were going, no, I'm going to choose a totally different path. And I think that's what might have helped with the self-cultivation. People were doing yoga or whatever they were doing. You know? How did you get out of going to the Vietnam War? Were they, was your number drafted or they were just going down the line still? Uh, no, uh, my number was, was picked, but I just didn't go. And um, um, there was no way at that point. It was... I was already anti-war, you know, going to, you know, demonstrations and stuff. But, um, and it was punishable by five years in jail at the time. And I'm, that was always the threat. And if you got stopped by the police and you're driving, you know, they might ask you for your draft card if you look. Um, but after Nixon uh, resigned and um, 
it wouldn't have been a good look to start throwing American boys in prison after they found out that we were in Cambodia and, you know, the things that people were protesting about, you know, came to pass as being true. And so, uh, the, uh, was it, um, his successor, uh, Ford gave everybody a pardon. That must've been a crazy time. People are getting drafted left and right. You yeah. don't want to go. A lot of people don't want to go. Yeah. And you're just in this constant fear of, shit, what if they catch me? Are they going to ship my ass over there? What's going to happen? I, I don't remember being in constant fear, but if I got stopped for speeding, I, I said, okay, I might be asked for my draft card, but I guess I was lucky that way. Um, did they ever catch people and send them over there, or was it jail time? I, I mean, did they actually enforce It was that? One, of, one or the other, you know. Um, but uh, you had to fill out some sort of form they gave you for the pardon and give reasons, but they weren't going to start throwing people in jail at that point. But, you know, I, I had a lot of friends that went over there and nobody came back normal. I don't know one that really came back whole. So I'm, I feel fortunate. And from my perspective, I don't know how other people feel that were in my boat, a little bit of guilt that I, I wasn't, you know, with my brothers over there and and that they, they carried the load and, and paid the price, even though it wasn't for a good reason, you know. That's the crazy thing is it wasn't for a good reason. Right. right. We were just shipping people over there to die. Yeah. Yeah. And even now with everything that's come out about it, it's, do you still feel that tinge of guilt today? Um, or that was more so back then? It's it's just something I'm I'm aware of. I was aware of then, you know, and I don't really even haven't said that to anybody who went to Nam and I that I you know I always was oh I was there for them, but no I don't I don't think I said anything. I think a little bit, yeah, you know. Uh, I mean, it was the right thing to do. It was the moral thing to do. It was survival. It was all those things. But um, you know, who knows what they might have done in their lives without that um, Agent Orange, you know, just the, you know, it's, war is crazy, you know, it messes you up for real. War is crazy, and when you realize the war isn't just, I would imagine the psychological damage is just compounded. At yeah. least, uh, everyone likes to point to World War II, but at least you could say that was for some cause. Yeah. That you were going over there and you were fighting for something that was mm -hmm. tangible. Yeah. Vietnam, it just feels like that, and the Iraq war, it just feels like that was for, I mean, something ephemeral that you can't even touch that wasn't in reality. And yeah. you just, people just went over there and died. Yeah. And for what? what? I mean, look at what happened with the pullout in Afghanistan. I mean, you have all these things and it's it's the same thing repeating over and over again. It's like yeah. we haven't learned our lesson about it. It seems like we haven't learned our lesson in a lot of things. Um, uh, I mean, in a way, Trumpism reminds me of Germany, you know, there's that same political uh, vibe that's been set up to blame this guy, to blame that guy, and, you know, whatever, and the guy with the big mouth at the top of the chain, and people start following it, so it's, it's, it's scary to me, you know, that I can even make that correlation, but I do. What's scary to me is, growing up, I used to always think that there were adults in charge, that somebody was up there steering the ship, and then yeah. as you get older, you realize, mm -hmm. nope, just people. Yeah, it's just slightly older, 
kids no. that are in charge of everything, just yeah. making decisions for the rest of everybody else. Yeah, it's and scary. We're just, we keep moving forward. There's no adult. There's no person who is all knowing that is guiding us, that is taking care of us or watching out for us. It's just these people that have progressed to this situation in life. That are making mistakes. I don't know if we recognize Like people them. do. Yeah. Making mistakes yeah. like people do, but their mistakes are so much more costly than the mistakes we make. Yeah. And, and then here I am, and I, we're talking about war, and that's what I teach, really. <laughs> but you teach it in a sense where there's almost empowerment in it, because you were teaching people to protect themselves, in a sense. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I... I <clears throat> Do you look at it that way, or how do you see it? You see it as a, as a combat. I do for sure, but um, I, I, I try to look at it as I'm a janitor sweeping the floor. I don't concern myself with that and any of the good things, which there are many that come out of fight training, whether it be martial arts or boxing. They're a byproduct of the process, you know. Um, so. You know, if you find peace or you learn some gems of wisdom from studying those arts, that's because you trained really hard, not because you went and going, I want to be enlightened. You don't go, you know, that's not going to work. The training puts you at this place where you go, huh, I kind of get that now, you know, empathy, um, people scared, you know, um, the chaos of war, how people deal with that, you know. It, there's no fighter that's not been humbled in in their life sometime got their ass kicked and um so you kind of, it's a great way to um study the human condition in a sense but as a teacher i try to stay away from that heady stuff until way down the line cuz i just want the process to take you somewhere and then you go where am i you know how did i get here and that's that's fun for me rather than trying to tell people here's where you should be heading you know um heady in terms of how it impacts their life outside of fighting um yeah all those things all those things because you know you learn in a boxing gym or any fight gym you create really close relationships you kind of uh, get naked you see people's weeks you you, you you study to see people's weaknesses and just how they move. You learn to recognize doubt and all those things. So, you know, it's going to take you somewhere. I try not to define that um, and try to let them get to a place that um, that they start asking bigger questions because they got there through this thing, through this art form. There are many ways to to figure this out, I think, but this is one of them, and it's a and it's an abrupt path. It has bumps in the road and um, um, uh, pain and laughing. It has all that stuff. Physical it. and mental pain. Physical and mental pain. You try to minimize the the physical pain, but um, the the physical pain is a blessing too. So when did you start fighting? You started out in boxing. I started out in karate. In karate. Yeah, I competed in the AAU circuit, <clears throat> which back in the 70s was, a, I think, a m much stronger organization. They they looked after all the Olympic sports at that time, and um, um, it was a kind of a no-nonsense 
karate going on in this country. Nobody wore equipment. I don't even think they had invented equipment yet. So there was the risk of getting hurt, and um, it was uh, very ritualistic, the fighting, so everybody was very serious. And you knew you were stepping into something serious, and uh, you could get hurt. And so how long did you do that for? Oh, I probably did that for about uh, three, three years, three, four years. I had a lot of success. Um, it turns out I I like to fight. <laughs> no, it's it's a lot of fun to me. And and um, uh, so much respect for anybody that I, I did fight in those days. And I got to fight some of the best fighters in the country in those days. And um, they were all considerate, smart guys. They were all... You know, people I would want to be friends with, and um, uh, the best fighters were. The not so good fighters were walking around pounding their chest. That's one of the weird misconceptions about really physical activity in general is that it's kind of got this meathead mentality yeah. attached to it. Yeah, I think that extends to fighting as well. Yeah, it's a, it, it, except it's not true. Like, there's there's no such thing as a dumb fighter. There's an uneducated fighter. There's somebody who may not be articulate. But all fighting is based on deceit and um, and in many realms. So you have to be crafty and smart and anticipate, study. Um, even if you do it on a just natural way, there's, a, there's an intelligence about that that's um, pretty keen. And so did the boxing come when the karate stopped? No, I studied boxing and karate. I studied kung fu and studied a bunch of styles, but I always did them. And the reason I did boxing was <clears throat> I wanted to develop hands because once I decided I was going to compete, I wanted to have really good hands. So, And that was a, a smart move because I did. I had good hands. Did most people cross-train like that back then? Um, it seems like when you see... Uh, Karate schools, they say, you know, they list about 20 things they teach and there's always boxing on there. I don't know if they studied it diligently or everybody, you know, everybody put on a pair of boxing gloves at some time, but it doesn't make you a boxing instructor. But definitely the skills that you, if you're trained correctly in the martial arts, you know, it'll only make you a better boxer because it's a, a keen sense of concentration in martial arts that you can bring to boxing, um, an understanding of the physics and the mechanics that boxers do, but you could do them a little better if you got in a little lower stance or just looked at the world from a little different point of view. So I think it really enhances the boxing. Well, that's the beauty with mixed martial arts today, right, is it takes all of the best parts of a variety of different yeah. fighting styles and puts them together and says okay here you go yeah yeah and and <clears throat> i've my son's a big uh ufc fan and um i reluctantly have come to enjoy it always had respect for them because i respect anybody who steps in a ring um but in the in the beginning days like i was talking about in la um <laughs> that it wasn't mma then or they were calling it something else but they were all juicing and they were all kind of crazy. And, you know, I, I stood in the shadow of their thigh muscle, you know, on a sunny day and they, you know, they were 
they were out there. They weren't that well trained. So they were like, you know, the crazy guys who decided they wanted. So they, and they were just beating the crap out of each other, but their technique was not refined. They were just jacked up on roids. <laughs> a lot of them. I'm sorry yeah. to say, listen, I love you guys, but in those days, a lot of them were jacked up. And then they got better and better and better. And they started studying the art form of martial arts and boxing. And now they're really skilled. And um, I worry about them because I don't know how they're not going to take the blows they're taking and not have some repercussions down the road. So I do worry about them. Were you worried about that back then? Were people concerned about concussions and brain damage and TBIs and things like that? No, no, never. This wasn't on anybody's radar. No, it wasn't really. And and um, I'm lucky to say I, I was an aggressive fighter. So, um, and when you're... When you're a young black belt fighter and, you know, you got a lot of piss and vinegar, you know, my thing was to just seek and destroy. So I was so offensively minded, people had a hard time finding the time to hit me. So I didn't take many blows to the head, uh, thankfully. Did you ever get knocked out? Uh, No, I came close once. I guess technically I was knocked out, yeah. But I got, I took a right hand and I... Guy was big. He was. I thought I was going to be faster than him, and he caught me with a right hand. And I remember spinning around 360 degrees. And I go, "Wow, this is what knocked out like." And I saw the referee coming up to me, and you know, trying to corner me. And everything's moving, and it's an echo. It's kind of like the movies. It's kind of like that. And uh, the referee grabs me, and he says, "How many fingers I got up on my hand?" And I. I saw like four hands circling, and, and I said, "What hand?" And he said, "You're all right." And that was the only way. <laughs> how crazy is that? They were just like, "Yeah, you're good. <laughs> yeah, Keep yeah. fighting." And I, yeah, you know, I had no idea how many fingers. I did win that fight, though. So you know, but I was saying, "Oh, that's what, that's the closest I've been." Luckily. Yeah, luckily now, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Did you was karate the only thing that you competed in? Yeah, professionally. Okay, yes. mm-hmm. I'm not that familiar with with how that works. In a competition style, are you, are there primarily headshots? Are you going for the body? Um, mostly body, but in those days, <clears throat> it was a lot different. Um, there was no equipment. No um, equipment like headgear, padding, shin guard, nothing like shin that. Shin you, know, you would get disqualified for wearing any kind of equipment besides a cup or a mouthpiece. You could pretty much hit to the body as hard as you want. If somebody got hit and, and went down and couldn't get up, you won. If you hit them to the face and split them, if you drew blood from the face, you could be disqualified. So the facial contact was um, up, or the the lack of facial contract uh, uh, contact developed a really finite accuracy. So you could come up and you know, hit somebody to the eye and come within a quarter of an inch and come back, and that would be considered a point in those days. But mostly you'd go to the body because you could hit them to the body. And So you wouldn't actually connect with their face? No. You would just get super close? Yeah, yeah. I and, and if you were this far away, you wouldn't, it wouldn't score. You had to be like there, and it had to extend and come back. So it couldn't be like... Today, I think at the 
karate tournament level, but this was pretty high level. We were going to the Pan Am Games and, you know, the, the worldwide competition. So, it, it, But now if you go and they have big, soft things, and if you touch him, but it had to be delivered to the face in a straight, thrusting way, have uh, uh, impact and come back to show incredible control. That's the only way that would score a point. So the body was the primary target. And that wasn't because they were worried about damage to the face. It was just the blood. It, you couldn't have um, blood coming down? Well, um, no. I, I Hopefully they were worried about the damage to the face. Um, you're bare-knuckled. Um, you're punching mostly with the one knuckle on your hand. So anything to the face, it's basically going to be bone-on-bone. Um, so it's going to cut immediately. Um, so yeah, they were trying to prevent that. And the, the element of control was a big part of karate at that time. Um, it was the world union karate association and, you know, that they want that accuracy and that, that beautiful movement coming in and, 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 and pulling that hand back. But, you know, people got carried out. That's for sure. Well, yeah, I mean, you can kick, right? You could throw kicks to the body. You can kick to the body. Yeah, I mean, if you take a rough yeah. liver shot or something, I mean, you're gonna. Oh. Yeah, it's gonna be painful. That's gonna be a wake up call. Yeah, I remember at the '81 uh, Nationals, AAU Nationals in in Chicago. Um. Uh, the Olympic Committee was looking at karate. I say karate because it's two words. Most people say karate, but it's kata meaning empty and te meaning hand. It re it's really a Buddhist definition really means empty mind but the olympic committee was looking at karate and taekwondo as a possible olympic sport edition and they changed the rules and did some changes and they were trying to everybody was trying to clean themselves up and i remember that tournament 50 people a day got carried out where the mayor of chicago was saying i'm closing this jesus thing. So, and Taekwondo won over karate that year. Why was that? Just the technicality of it? I think they were they were more unified. I think they should they presented a, a more unified organization. And um, they won out. That must have been a bummer. Um, I think it was. I mean, there was, you know, uh it was <clears throat> It was a good look into the politics of sport for for a lot of us, you know, because things changed when the, all of a sudden this might be Olympic sport. People were in the higher echelons of AAU and uh, WUCO. We're all jockeying for positions that were going to be lucrative in the future, you know. So I think rules were changed that endangered because um, they wanted a more exciting fight and the rules they changed made it more dangerous clearly and um i think karate uh was less successful in, in keeping those injuries down than taekwondo which is korean was there money in it back then or was this just you were just fighting no there was no, for reputation yeah, no it, there was no money i mean the only money that there was was in the sport itself running the organizations and stuff but it was amateur sports, amateur athletic union. How did you get involved in that? What made you want to start? Um, 
I, I think it was the culture. I, my first teacher had, he was an awesome teacher, and he taught people how to move, which is his biggest gift to me. He taught me how to teach people how to move. But he was also a competitor. He was a, a runner, and he was into, uh, he was on the board of the AAU, so he sort of encouraged us. And um, <clears throat> so I did it, and um, I was a pretty good fighter, almost from the start, so he cultivated me, and um, it was fun for a while. And how old were you when you started? Uh, early 20. Yeah. Oh, 20. Okay, yeah. I was thinking maybe teens. No, no. It was a little later. Yeah. And then you did it for four years, six years? Uh, about probably three or four years four I years. did AAU, and then I, I moved out to L.A. And did you still train when you went out there? Every day. Every day, but you didn't yeah. compete? No, no, okay. I was done with that, and um, um, but I always trained. That's what made just, you stop competing? Just wasn't wasn't profitable. You couldn't it, sustain it. No, I don't. I don't know. I think I was done with it. I think you know. Oh, I could do this. I was a rated fighter. I was all America one year. You know. I mean, like I probably did. I could. Stay in it for another five or six years, and maybe whatever. I don't know what would happen, but it was like, okay, that was fun. I really enjoyed that. Now it's time to do something different. And is that when the acting stuff? You're in LA now. It's kind of I was in focus. LA. In LA, yeah. And um, I was lucky. Um, at that time, martial arts were like crazy in LA. You know, everybody wanted to practice martial arts. Bruce Lee. And, David Carradine from the old series Kung Fu. Do you remember that? And it was like a martial arts craze in L.A. So um, I had credentials, and um, and I, and I started teaching. I didn't plan to, but I started teaching in L.A. And I was teaching producers and directors and actors, and you know that led to a couple of roles and um, started taking acting classes, studying with as many people as I could and took it for a ride. But, uh, you know, um, made a few bucks, got to travel, you know, did a lot of bad movies. <laughs> you could see in, in, um, in driving in Texas maybe some Saturday night. Uh, I, I wasn't as dedicated to that art, although I worked hard because you can't go there and not work hard, but... In retrospect, I didn't give that what I gave and continue to give my martial arts, which, you know, I mean, I've made a small fortune teaching martial arts. Only kidding. I, no, <laughs> you you nodded like you believed it. Oh, for yeah, a I was buying yeah. you for a second. The money like, right. is unbelievable. Um, but I thought you were going to say, yeah, I've got a mansion up on the hill over yeah, there. I, mean, I do. I do. I have it all. Um, and so that sense, I had this thing that I loved, that I loved from day one. I'm going to do this forever. Who knows why? I have no idea why. I just, but I always felt fortunate that I found something I love to do. So I found other ways to pay the bills. Did you, do you love the teaching aspect of it more than the actual practice of it in competition? Um. Well, yeah, I think I think so, but um, I'm at a stage now in my life where that's all changing. 
Yeah, you don't want to be fighting now. You don't want to be getting in the No, rain. no, I'm not fighting going anymore crazy. unless I'm in Old Town on a crazy Saturday Yeah, a homeless night. guy walks up and says, yeah. hey, we're going to have a problem. No, I'll leave the homeless guy alone. Um, no, no, teaching's a, a, an awesome uh, gift, and uh, um, I'm honored to do it because you get to have intimate relationships with people and uh, that last a lifetime. And so I'm just lucky that I found something that I love to do. And I realized, well, I'm not going to make much money doing this. So I better find something else to do, too. Um, so I've always worked to allow myself to do that part, which has been good. And acting was that. I made a few bucks acting, you know. But it didn't scratch the same itch as No, I combat. can't say it did. I mean, it was great. L.A. was great good to me. Holly was good to me. I fell in with the right people. I, you know, sometimes a you know, guy would come in. I was like other people. I was working, I'm managing a restaurant in LA and, you know, I was teaching too. So I was kind of cross-referenced and it was a big movie star hangout, really hot place in Hollywood. And directors would come, Hey Gary, I got, you know, can you be here tomorrow morning? And it's like, yeah, shit, I'll be there. And, you know, and, so slowly, some roles. It did a short stint on Days of Our Lives, some commercial stuff, action stuff. I've died a lot. Bad cops, um, some kung fu stuff. Got to travel a little bit, so it was fun. Yeah, I saw a scene from was it Spider? Oh, you did. Yeah, where you're, you're it's, there's a lot of action going on, a lot of explosions. Oh yeah, um, that was uh, that was in the Philippines. Um, it's actually released now on a Black Belt 2 Fatal Force. Drugs with a problem. Meet the solution. <laughs> um, and uh, I think that's on Amazon right now. But yeah, that was a lot of fun. It's a bad film. I mean, you know. But I would imagine a great time just being in the Philippines shooting. Oh, I mean, awesome. You're just having a ball. I was the bad guy. So I got to kill a lot of people i got to do crazy explosion stuff and you know that was fun that was a lot of fun but it's not going anywhere i think um you know <laughs> one of my biggest claims to fame is rotten tomatoes referred to me from that movie as no name actor gary rooney <laughs> which i have on my office wall do you really yeah. oh, how funny. very proud of that what what pulled you out of acting just um, a realization that it wasn't kind of your thing or you weren't going to be able to give it your all? Maybe deep down uh, I knew that, but I didn't uh, – L.A. was great to me. I've got a lot of gratitude for L.A. in so many ways, and I met some awesome people and got to meet, meet some you know, teachers that were forever influenced me, but I never felt at home in L.A., um, I'm from Boston and um, you know, from an Irish working class. And when I first got to LA, it was like, this is crazy, you know. Um, and you have to make a lot of adjustments when you come from the East Coast. Like, um, you know the movie Goodwill Hunting? Yeah. Okay, that's my neighborhood. <laughs> so from there to land in uh I mean I lived on Cape Cod for about eight years before, uh, but that's where I grew up. So to land in LA, you just go, wow. This is crazy. People are crazy. They don't seem, in a lot of ways, they don't seem that happy. Even and I met a lot of successful people, famous people, um, 
I worked for Dudley Moore and Liza Minnelli, and you know, I trained and I'm like looking, I go, wow, they got bosses too, and they got more money than God, but I don't know if they, some of them don't look that happy. So I, I never felt at home in LA like I knew I was going to live there. So I had a good year and I decided I am getting out of here. I had enough money to pay cash for a house. <clears throat> and so I moved to Portland where they had a acting community there and they had a SAG office there, Screen Actors Guild office. And I, they were like shooting a lot of movies there. So I said, I'm going there. So I drove up there in a van and bought a house and one day wrote a check. I said, I'm living in Portland now and loved it and worked there, got some work. Um, but then uh, the uh, film industry moved to Canada. Do you remember that happened? Mm -mm. Well, um, the, the Canada made the film industry all sorts of deals. Come here, no taxes. So productions were flying out of the U.S., even out of Hollywood, to go to Vancouver to shoot films because they could do it, you know, um, uh, $6 on the 10 or whatever. It was unbelievable. So they were stupid not to. Well, that closed all the smaller markets in the film industry, the small cities like Portland, which had a, to have a SAG office, there's some work going on. So, but those small cities that had acting stuff, it all went to Canada. And <clears throat> at that time, I had met my wife and we had a baby, my son. And it was like, okay, uh, what's going on now? And she's an artist. She's a potter, kind of well-known potter, Kate Purcell. And um, I was not going to bring my family to LA to like, you know, chase this dragon, whatever it was going to be. So it you was just didn't want them around that. Uh, no, I didn't want to bring up a son in LA. Didn't want to do that. So we lived in Portland for a while and then we moved down here, which she always wanted to do. My wife, she's a card-carrying hippie. So she always wanted to come back to Humboldt County. So we, I kind of made that deal with her when we got married. Was she from here originally? No. She's from um, Connecticut. Um, but uh, then she went to uh, school in Wisconsin and then ended up here working at a organic farm and you know she was um and loved it here so she always wanted to come back here and it turned out to be a great place to bring up our kid so it all yeah better than LA I would imagine yeah I think that's a safe bet a lot of pitfalls in LA you know and I I, I think especially now I think it's really hard to be a young person I really do. I think we had it easy. I had it easier. Things were simpler. Now, I don't know, young men don't seem that confident to me anymore. You know, there's all this doubt and, you know. Oh, man, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, I think people don't understand um, that it's uh, it's hard to be a young man right now, I think, these days. I really do. So I, I feel for them. But this was a good place, you know to bring up a, a young man because people are pretty, for the most part, forward thinking here. And um, so we made a we made a good plan coming here. What do you think that stems from? Because I agree with you. It seems like self-confidence, <clears throat> these previously held masculine qualities almost seem to be beaten out of men or yeah. looked down upon in a way. 
I, I think you might have just put your finger on it. Um, I hate to sound like that guy that's on the, uh, I forget his name. It's always Jefferson or he's the guy that worked at Harvard. He was a teacher at Harvard. They threw him out for his right thinking ways, but he's, he really stresses on that, that young men are in trouble right now. Was that the judge that, that recently happened? No, not okay. the judge. He was a professor there. And why can't I think? I forget his name. Maybe it'll come to me. But he's on he's online all the time, his little spots. He's on every show, and people hate him. And I don't agree with much what he says, but that part I kind of get that men, young men are in trouble right now. And, um, you know, they're the permission to have a relationship or how they relate to women is totally different than um, than when we were we were kids. If we liked a girl, we'd ask her out, you know, or whatever. But now they're reluctant. They're reluctant to cross all these lines. I don't have the answers. I just go, wow, man, it looks tough right now. I'm glad I'm not living now. It seemed a lot easier for me to feel confident, and and maybe for bad reasons. I don't know the root of the my confidence might have been from some messed up stuff, but it was easier. <laughs> you agree? I agree. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure why. Obviously, because I've only lived in this time period, so I didn't mm -hmm. get to see that. But you look at the mm -hmm. culture, which has some negatives to it for sure. But it just seemed like men, what a man was, is significantly different than what a man is today. I guess you could say. Yeah, and a lot of good reasons that they should be different than they they were in those days. I you know I get that too, um, but in this process, whatever it has happened, and I wish I knew the answers. Um, it's taken its toll on our young men. I know, you know, it seems to me, and I could be wrong. I know it's. It seems to me that young women are more relaxed than young men. Nowadays, they seem to have a handle on stuff. We're more, to me, more young men are floundering and uh, and not feeling good about it. So um, I don't know what the answer, but I wish, it, I wish it was different. Do you think that's a discipline aspect? Do you think there's just... Because obviously there was pressure on your generation too, right? To get a job, to work, yeah. to provide. Yeah. So there's still those same those same levels that I think men want to achieve yeah. the role of being a provider self-sufficiency of independence. But I'm not quite sure if my generation feels that that is attainable maybe. Yeah. I think that's a good point. Um, but whatever I was encouraged to do is basically go out on your own and make it, make out what you're going to do. <clears throat> now I think you're expected to go to school and come out and, you know, be six figures coming out of school and that's not happening anymore. So, well, that's a disappointment in yourself. I think the expectations are higher where there might've been a buffer period for us. Like, okay, I'm leaving home. I'm going to wait on tables on Cape Cod, sling spaghetti for a summer and meet some artists and be exposed to things or whatever, whatever happens happens, but I'm not feel like I got to jump into this, this business world or wherever I go, there was, there, again, maybe maybe there was more time for self-cultivation. Um, maybe you end up in a place more organically than 
if you're supposed to do this and you're supposed to do that and you're not supposed to ask this and you know there's so many rules for these poor kids do you think that picking up fighting that it helped you in that regard that it gave you something to kind of hone your energy into in almost a mirror that you could look at your reflection in and say okay maybe i'm a little weak here and i need to strengthen this or i need to get better in this regard almost like a a scaffolding for how you wanted to build out your life? <clears throat> I don't think so. I, I just remember being an ultra-confident kid, you know, even though— Even before fighting. Even before I had any business feeling confident, you know, just a dumb thing, yeah, whatever. I was going, yeah, I'm going to do great. <laughs> you know, I whether it was naive or not, I don't remember going through that awkward stage that— I always felt like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure this shit out and it's going to be good in the end. I'm going to try to have some fun along the way and that was enough. Um, I need to cultivate that kind of confidence in my life because I'm lacking in that department. Really? That, yeah, that idea of just, it's just, just going to pan out, I think. I, I don't have that built into me in that way. Well, I mean, you know, it brings you back to fighting where you put in an unknown, you put in the chaos, and there's a lot of ways to have doubt. And um, and you just like go, okay, it's like, um, and 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 teaching women, I'm teaching a lot of women now, um, which I didn't expect, but they're they turns out they like to hit shit too, you know. Um, so I'm I'm actually bringing or trying to, and I do pretty successfully because I've been teaching a long time, bring people through the different stages of like, well, this doesn't feel good, <laughs> you know, getting conked in the head or just not that you're getting hit, but just the uncomfortability of incidental contact, maybe bumping your head and they like overreact and or whatever. And it's getting through that, that um, confidence is, you know, in sports, they say it's based on reps. You know, if you're not confident, do reps. You'll get better. And, and, and fighting it is. I don't know. I think, you know, growing up in a working class, you know, Irish neighborhood in Boston, it, everybody was kind of confident and nobody probably had any business being confident, but it worked, <laughs> you know. Well, and it, that speaks to that work ethic idea, right? Because that's where I, I find my confidence in terms of work ethic. I feel pretty solid in that because mm -hmm. I know how to put my head down and just yeah. grind it out. It's when you get into the the realm of life and what's next and what kind of path are we going to carve out? Because there's so many options. There's so many different things. We're in. It's almost paralysis by analysis that there uh -huh. are so many different directions that you can go in where do you start? You yeah. have to first take a step. It's There's so many different ones you could take, you almost just stand still for fear of taking the wrong one. Well, sometimes I don't counsel. I mean, I have a lot of young men's students, and um, most of them don't need this kind of counseling. Um, I, I end up with extraordinary kids somehow. Like, they piss me off. They're so extraordinary. You know? um, but I, I tell... And kids don't like to be mentored right now. I might find, like, when I was young, I remember I would see some guy who owns 
the store or the restaurant or whatever. And I would always be looking at them, go, how do you get that? How do you, you know, how do you work that out? And if they took the time to talk to me, I was like, yeah, yeah, tell me some more. I want to know. I want to know. I think, I think there's an element of that missing where young people, if you say, hey, you might think about it, they go, yeah, yeah. They don't really want to hear your advice a lot, it seems to me. So I'm, I'm old enough like, okay, whatever, I'm, I'm done. I don't need to talk to you about it. But um, the one thing I do say that when I get the chance to a kid who's like, well, I don't really know what I'm doing and like, whatever, girls don't like me. And I go, <clears throat> all you have to do is walk in a direction. Take the goal off the off the chart. Take the goal off. Don't even think about that. But you say, I like that. So you walk in that direction. And you, I guarantee you, you're not going to go from point A to point B to that destination. You're probably going to veer off. That destination is going to become less important and you're going to head in this direction and something's going to happen to, to, to be a plot change for you. And you go, oh, but it's only because you headed in a direction. Stop, take the goal off the map, you know. We've made our kids so goal-oriented, you know, in terms of money and what they're expected to do that forget that for a little while. Just walk, and I guarantee you, you won't end up where you think you were going. You were heading in the first place. And you'll probably be happier at that other spot. I, I think so. I think so. That goal-oriented thing is almost ingrained in our society now. That you have these certain boxes you have to check at these certain ages. Mm -hmm. And when you don't meet that, it's not, okay, you know, I'm going to keep moving forward. It's, oh, now I'm so far behind because I couldn't even check that box. And so now I'm still struggling to check this box while I'm missing out on all these other boxes. Well, the other thing that they don't know, I think, is that, you know, if you talk to my son, he'll tell you about my days in the monastery and stuff, you know, because... I want him to think clearly and make good decisions so I don't tell him all the stupid shit I did. So they think of their parents are this straight line walkers, which most of us were not, especially in the, you know, 60s and 70s. A lot of experimentation was going on. A lot of things were changing. So we might have not been walking the straight line, but we tell them we did. <laughs> and I think for the most part they believed, oh, my dad would you know, whatever. Straight as an arrow. Maybe I'll have to sit down and have a beer with him one day, <laughs> tell him the truth. But um, so that's where they're coming from mentally is like this sense of discipline. But you got to make mistakes. Mistakes are good. You know, um, it's all part of that up and down thing. Um, but martial arts and fighting help with that. They really do because... Um, you know, they have this Buddhist, Zen, like, sort of sensibility to it. And, and it goes, of course, you know, the four noble truths. The first one is pain, life is suffering. It sucks, you know, um, so deal with that. And, and so that transposes to fighting. Guess what? You got hit in the head. It sucks, you know, deal with that. I think there's almost something romantic in that suffering, though. Yeah. That you're enduring... You're just the ability to endure in a sense that you mm-hmm. can take what life dishes to you and yeah, you might get knocked down, but you're going to get back up and you're going to keep going. Yeah. I find that to be pretty appealing. Yeah. Yeah. 
But expect pain. It's going to come. And, and how you deal with that. Um, and so in fighting those those principles, they always, you can always go, oh, yeah, maybe life's like that too. You know, it's simple. It's I make it too complicated. Maybe it's simple. Because the second noble truth is all suffering comes from desire. And the third is get rid of the desire. So in, and when you're in the ring or you're in an uncomfortable chaos of war, that's like saying, oh, yeah, it is suffering. You know, this guy's trying to hit me or you're sparring in the gym and you're afraid to get hit. This is like purposely enduring suffering. That's what martial artists do because that, that's like they realize, oh, that's what it's about and dealing with that. And then the chaos goes away. And then you're just a thinking, measuring, you know, just seeing the process happen void of the um, emotion of it, you know, and that's a great place to be. I mean, you can be in the middle of chaos and go, yeah, I think I can deal with this. Um, I've been here before. That's a great lesson, I think. Well, that's where I was going with the scaffolding of life comparison is that in fighting, you have to overcome and work through so many different things and emotions that are directly applicable to life overcoming fear, doing things maybe you don't want to do, working hard, being disciplined, and all that directly translates to living a life that is successful by whatever definition you have for success. Yeah. Because you're going to have to do that. You're going to have to work hard. You're going to have to be disciplined. You're going to have to do things you don't want to do in the moment mm -hmm. to get through. Yeah. And, and I, <clears throat> you know, I, I like that the process teaches that. I don't have to say those things. I don't say them on purpose. I mean, maybe sometimes I do. I don't think about it this way, but mostly I just let the process uh, do the work. Do the work. So when a student comes, you know, for whatever the reason they come, guys, and what somebody might have kicked sand in their face at the beach, or they've been wanting to do this their whole life, they were the smart kid in school. But they always, you know, maybe they didn't, they got picked on a little. There's whatever reasons people come in in their midlife and say, I want to box now. Um, you know, that's not that's not my a place to decide why or whether as long as I feel like I can teach them and we can have a relationship, they're going to go through this process. And my job is not to say, oh, and this will teach you this in life. You know, it's like... Um, I'm not. I'm not a Jedi. I, I I sweep the floor. I'm a janitor. At the end of the day, I sweep the floor. I keep you as clean as possible. But one of the things that I do is, at first, I have to be a little gentle with you. So you know, you're you're on a timer. You're doing bag work. You're doing bag drills, and um, you're exhausted. You feel like you're gonna, but you can't stop till the bell goes off. You know, so. You get through these little things, or then when you start doing pad work, you know, and you're ducking things, and it's always with me. So, you, and I say you're not going to get hurt here. Hurt here, I'm the last guy that's going to hurt you. So you can let it go and try to get rid of that emotion. But as you get comfortable, I turn the gas up, and I make it a little crazier for you. And you get comfortable there, I make it a little crazier for you. And sometimes we. Get close to that place where you go, <laughs> put your hands on your head. But it, that's part of being a teacher is turning up the gas, turning up the gas. And sometimes people get aggravated with it because they go, 
well, I just can't think about nine things. I'm like this. I'm freaking out. You know, my head's getting hit. Okay. But that's by design. So realize that that's by design. If I'm turning up the gas on you, you're doing something right. And, um, and then they get to this place where they can stand in the middle of that chaos and not freak out. So that's, that's a great metaphor for them. They teach themselves. I don't teach it. I just move them through the different processes. You're almost Mr. Miyagiing them in a weird <laughs> yeah. way. I, I don't know about that, but um, I feel like they teach themselves. I, it's, I'm only doing what was done for me. It's not like I came up with some great new thing. Somebody taught me a process first and foremost, teach people how to move and then teach them how to focus and teach them how to understand diversity and, um, and teach them how to be confident. And mostly that comes from threading the needle concentration. There's no fear when you're threading a needle concentration when you learn to Take those lines of concentration that are your brain's moving like this, and then you move those lines together, and you, you're looking down the scope. You know, you kind of remove that stuff, and that comes from intense concentration, threading the needle concentration, um, and just getting people to that place. And that's a meditative state. That's a it's a place that's pretty free of all, all the things that mess with your head. If you can get to that place, it's pretty magical. Do you find that most of your students are coming to you for self-defense work? That it is that somebody kicks sand in my face kind of metaphor of I need to do this to be able to protect myself? I think there's an element of that. Um, but very seldom will they say that. Usually. It's almost unspoken. That, yeah. Well, you have to think this is one of the interesting times in life where you you can just get by your whole life without ever learning to protect yourself. It where yeah. society is so yeah. soft in that regard that you don't have to worry about somebody coming out of the woods and beating the shit out of you. Yeah. And you're fine. Well, I think that is that true because I think people walk to the south end of Eureka and go, Oh, better turn around, you know, when you get to that that one street that, you know, everything crazy is going down there, whatever's going down there, you turn around. I think people still live with fear and and a lot of people go i don't really want to learn how to fight i just want to i know the exercise aspect of it and i go well you're in the wrong place then because i'm going to teach you how to fight um it's like being a baker and making bread but never putting it in the oven you know this is what its purpose is not to let its purpose come to fruition is not having respect for your art form whatever it is not that you got to not going to be pounding each other's heads in, but you have, an, have to have an understanding of the application, an understanding how you're going to get through that application psychological-wise, and an understanding how you're going to beat your opponent psychological-wise and physical-wise. Because you don't beat their body. You, you have to beat their, their mind. You have to convince their mind that their body's in danger and they've had enough now. So uh, just being tough. So... Um, I'll, I'm flexible there to a point, but I'm not going to, at some point you have to like want to understand what, what we're really doing here and in an intelligent way, not in a dangerous way. Shouldn't be injuries. Um, a good example of that is Tai Chi. 
which I, I, I'm a Tai Chi instructor too. Um, but Tai Chi has evolved in this country to this dance that looks beautiful and you're doing it in the park and everybody looks groovy and, um, but it's lost its purpose in a lot of sense. Um, most people that practice Tai Chi don't know what the applications of the martial art, they, and if you talk to them, I've stopped talking to them, but um, somebody came up to me at a party and said, hey, I heard you're a Tai Chi instructor. And I said, yeah. Um, well, I just moved to town. I've been studying Tai Chi, and we were talking, and I said, um, it was a woman, and I said, so t- tell me something. What do you think about when you do Tai Chi? And um, she said, oh, I, beaches, you know, bunny rabbits, you know. <laughs> Bouncing in a field of lilies, and um, I go, great, great, great. She goes, what do you think of? I go, I'm dispatching opponents. And she goes, what does that mean? I said, I'm basically knocking people out or whatever. That's what I'm thinking about when I do Tai Chi. And she looked at me and said, why would you want to do that? And I said, I don't think I'm your teacher, but because that was that's its purpose. But sometimes when... Americans get an art form or whatever, they change it. And um, Tai Chi is one of those things. So if you learn Tai Chi with me, you have to understand the applications. You have to have some desire to one day let the let the applications come out and be able to use them. Otherwise, you're just mimicking this movement that has no uh, purpose. In, um, in martial arts, in Japanese, they call it bunkai. And bunkai means application or purpose. And that's always where your mind is. If it drifts one second, one millisecond off that purpose. So even when you're doing a movement without a partner, you're imagining when you make contact with them, you know, what comes next. It's this progression of series of things with a beginning, a middle, and an end. In Japanese, it's very linear and you know, straightforward in Chinese, it's more circular, more physics involved. And in Tai Chi, it's slowed down to such a speed that when you start moving and you start turning your head, you're going through the experience of, oh, an attack's coming. This is what it feels. And when that uh, defense changes into offense your mind and your body are changing with it so it slows that per that process of a quick fast martial art into you just in microseconds experiencing it in a really slow way which is amazing tai chi is a prime example of that right because that's the one that gets a lot of slack for oh it's not really a martial art it's like a dance people are yeah. just out in the park you're almost doing yoga you're just out there moving it's not yeah. directly applicable to you fighting somebody off. Yeah. Um, and I don't even know how good exercise it is if you're not, <laughs> if you're not having the purpose. Um, the one thing that Americans did um, to martial arts in this country is uh, martial arts almost always require very low stance, a stance that's very uncomfortable, a stance that takes – most people years to come anywhere near mastering where your legs are strong enough, but you essentially take your center of gravity and you slowly lower it to this point where 
it's you're solid you're tied into the ground even though you can be loose and water like you know you're 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 tied in and um, americans have in a lot of cases in this country taken the stance aspect out of it um because it's hard and a lot of people won't do it when they when they're in the stance for an hour and their legs are shaking and um they all who the hell wants to do this so um I think with a lot of us have figured out, well, let's bring the stances up a little bit. We'll get more students. They gotta pay the rent, they gotta pay the mortgage just like everybody else. Um, but Tai Chi can be accused of that for sure. And and in the old days, I remember we were like martial artists and we were going to the Tai Chi teachers and we were going, let's find out what this is about. You know, we, we know how to punch, kick, we're fighting, we're rated fighters. Let's go see this this guy, see what he's got. And so we were like looking to enhance what we had, and um, and now that that part of it's gone. Do you have a a specific martial art that you think is more suited to like life today in the sense of protection? Like, would you promote <laughs> boxing, or I mean, obviously, or something like Tai Chi? Do you have an entry level one for somebody? Like, if they're looking, saying, "Hey, I need to." You know, I need to be secured myself. I want to be able to protect myself. What would you start them out with? Boxing? I really would, yeah. Um, I would, you know, if I had to defend myself, it would be something crazy. It would be so fast that, you know, the person wouldn't know what hit him. It would be like lightning fast, intrinsic movement, so natural that the it's just there and it's over but that takes a long time to be honest to 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 get to that point and I try to get to that point in boxing but I tell my students okay and the women I tell them okay these are two things you have to have a left right and if you can throw a decent left right you're probably going to catch most people off guard and at least half knock them out so you can run so I spend some time on that. Um, it's probably what I'd use. <laughs> I mean, I do all these crazy martial arts, but if I had to defend myself, I'm probably going to like left. And by the time you're in that stage of, uh-oh, something happened, the person that gets hit with the left, the right's already on its way. It's a second torpedo. When that gets there, it's done. So it's an easy thing to teach if you're in the right frame of mind and you just follow through with it, that's probably going to work the best. Left, right, boom, it's over. Not many people are going to stand up to a good right hand on the chin. Yeah, especially if they've never been hit before. Yeah. Uh-huh. Do you have any experience with any groundwork, like jujitsu or anything like that? Um, there's a lot of grappling in some of the martial arts, that, but I, I've not done jujitsu. I've done a keto. Um, but there's a lot of grappling. I do a lot of grappling, mostly pain compliance. And um, is Aikido the one that's using your opponent's movements against them, or what am I thinking of? Yeah, is that no, Aikido? No, that is that is. And um, um, it's a generalization. It's an American. So yeah, you usually it's more than it's more that. simplified than it. It is. <clears throat> um, it's a lovely. And very nice martial art. I, in my opinion, I'm gonna you're gonna get calls on this. It's not enough. You have to have um, 
And I'm, one of my favorite teachers uh, is an Aikido teacher. He was my Iaido teacher, this uh, samurai sword. He was my teacher, and he was a, and he said this that you need to supplement Aikido with some hard stuff if you want it to be, if you want it to work. And I believe that. So yeah, you are you are using the people's energy against the person's energy against himself. Um, but sometimes, I don't know if you've seen Aikido demonstrations, you're definitely going to get calls on this. <laughs> I'm an Aikido guy, get him out here, I'll meet him at the part, which I will. <laughs> um, but they, We'll have to live stream that, we'll put it on yeah, YouTube. Yeah, okay. Um, and I love it, like I, I use a lot of Aikido techniques, but I just bring it to a more realistic nature. They, when they attack each other, sometimes... You know, they place their hand in your hand and it feeds into the vacuum, but very seldom does it work out like that where you have fed that hand for a pain compliance move. But it's mostly joint locks and stuff that is really good. I think you got to supplement a keto training with some old style hard. Other, other training. Yeah, involved. I believe so. What about something like Muay Thai? Do you think that that is a more well-rounded martial art in the sense that you wouldn't need to supplement with anything else? Or does that even exist? You need to pull from a bunch of different ones? I think it's, I think it's an awesome. Um, I did uh, a little bit of training in Thailand until I broke my foot. But, um, um, you know, it depends on what you measure it by. If, you have, if you're trained in Muay Thai, you can walk down to the south end of Eureka. You know, um, if you're talking about if I put the best fighters on the best styles, um, I mean, I have awesome respect for those guys. They they bang, you know. Um, but it's, it's, it's not, um, what's the word? I'm, it's not a complicated style. It's not a, an intricate style. Um but it's definitely effective. If you train in Muay Thai, you're going to be able to take care of yourself. Um, when I think about it, I think about how little energy it takes to get the job done rather than, you know, I have to, I'm 69, I'm pushing 70, you know, I'm not going to go in and... Um, Just start to, swinging from the hip. Well, I can still, but I, you know, I want to do less work. I want it to be easy. I want it to... Um, be over I, quick. I'm going to I'm going to make it quick and I am going to use your energy against you. It's not my station in life now to be, you know, uh Mr. Warrior. That being said, I still can for some reason. I hit the bag harder than I almost ever did. Um because the intrinsic movement is there. My body has learned to relax and just utilize every pound per square inch milla measurement goes into the, the exact spot I directed in. And so I don't use as much energy. And you said you you learned to train with a samurai sword as well? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I do. And it's the art of the draw. Um, really, I, I didn't study that till I was already a black belt. What made you want to train in that? Um, Just to kind of further your your direction down this path? Well... Because that seems like such a niche training, right? Because how often are you going to walk down the street with a samurai sword? Yeah. Um, 
It's true. And, and a, a friend brought me, basically, if I'm in L.A., right, and there's a famous Shotokan instructor at Oshima. You know, I did my best to get in with him and go, you know, train me. I got to spend some time. So there was this Iaido teacher that had an uh, unbelievable reputation. And I said, I want to meet him, you know, and got an introduction and started training with him. I was glad I didn't learn that or start that study till I was already kind of accomplished black belt. But weapons extend your technique. They extend your reach. and um, But it still comes from your body, you know. And he was an awesome teacher, just really skilled. How do you train for something like that? Does it have any live application where you're going against a real opponent with another sword? Because you're, you're using live blades, so no, you don't. You have two-person sets that you do that would scare you to death, especially if you did it with him. But kendo, which you're talking about hitting with the sticks or whatever with the headgear, but Iaido translates uh, art of the draw. So qu quite often um, there are standing, but mostly you're on your knees with your feet crossed in the back. And it's very ritualistic martial arts. You bow, you bow to... Oh, sensei, and you know, there, and then you put your sword on in a very ritualistic way, and then um, you sit there in seizan and, and meditation, and then you explode off your knee, drawing the sword out and making a cut at the same time, and then there'll be a series of movements, always ending with your opponent's death. So if um, you'll do a series of movements, come up with the block, and it, very specific movements with the body just directing the sword, but they say the sword directs you. And usually you end up with, you cut the guy's head off. And so the last moment of that, you know, you're looking down at the head, laying on the ground, and then you come up and you do a motion with the sword that flicks the blood off. There is no blood, but you flick it off and then here, and then you put the sword back in, you step back, and you, you're seated again. So it's very meditative and very threading the needle. But like my teacher would do a two-person set with you, and, and you go, and you can hear the blades in the air, whoosh, you know, and he go, whoosh, and it would stop like an inch, because most often uh, a katana, it's called, or people know it as a samurai sword. The end game is to get the like the last three inches of the blade through the skull on the top. So that's the um, that's the bunkai, that's the application. So, uh, But it's very specific how it moves. The blade has to come up and shoom, the way it builds up speed so it has the right velocity to penetrate. Um, it's considered a, um, a very artsy martial art. But I learned a lot from it because it extended my awareness out here it, when i put a sword in my hand i went whoa this is powerful <laughs> you know um but i had a center of gravity so now i knew i was going to extend this now and i was eager to learn so it was fun and well an artsy today but back when people were fighting with swords probably incredibly useful yeah yeah and in fact one of the things i do every once in a while <clears throat> with my martial arts students is i i bring in pictures of my teacher and I bring in picture of, in a little biography or whatever, and I bring in a picture of 
his or her teacher, and then I bring in a picture of their teacher. So it's three teachers going back. Well, by the time I get to the third, they're practically in a samurai uniform, you know what I mean? It wasn't that long ago we were chopping people's heads off. We still are, unfortunately. And Certain places. Yeah, yeah. So we like to think, well, no, this is then. This is like I'm three guys away from him, and I'm teaching you. That's how close you are to that. So that's your approach. That's your bunkai. That's your application. You know, it's not always an application. Always. If you're anyplace else, you should do aerobics. Uh-huh. Yeah, do some aerobics. Yeah. Go hit some weights. You'll be all right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting perspective when you start looking backwards in terms of lifespan. Because, I mean, the country we're in right now isn't that old when you yeah. start going that way. Mm-hmm. We're, we're three people ago. And now here we are sitting, talking in front of microphones. Yeah. And and, and it's scary that <clears throat> how quick we forget. Um, you know, I think people that... Um, a certain persuasion, uh, and, and some young people, the civil rights movement, how ugly it was. And, and if you were there and you saw it, it would be hard for you not, not to say, oh, that's not good. But people have already forgotten that, and it's kind of like the hate is starting to well up again for minorities, for immigrants, or whatever. And I... And I said, no, you got to look back there, see what happened, see what people were doing. They were killing each other. They were, you know, it was an ugly time. Don't do that again. Who told you to do that again? Um, it's a little scary for me. Do you think about that a lot? The current political climate, uh, like you, that weighs on you. It does, um, because I think, in a sense, history is repeating itself. And I mean, the first president I saw talk was Eisenhower. You know, we, I was jumping under my desk for uh, nuclear war drills in school, you know. Um, I, I did see the uh, civil rights movement. I lived in Boston, which was a hotbed of violence and very hard place to desegregate, you know. Um, and, and saw the pain of that, saw the assassinations, the, the craziness that that caused. And... We sort of got politically correct for a while. It seemed like, okay, good, that's over. No, it's not. We're bringing that shit back. And um, it's gotten to be in vogue again. You know, it's okay. It's disguised in different terms today, you know. But um, it's going on again, and that's disturbing for me. Do you have mixed feelings about the direction in the sense that some things are definitely better, right? Overall, I think you could say that Society is a more comfortable place for more yeah. people. It's yeah. more accepting. Yeah. But then you do have downsides, like the problems plaguing young men, like the direction of the country at large. Is that kind of like a mixed pill to swallow where you I have so. you've been around and you've kind of seen some things? Yeah, I think so. I think the, um I mean uh, in a way I'm like I young people are great today. I don't. I think what's what I'm talking about. I don't think it's their fault, but I think you know. Um, I have a lot of respect for them. They, there seems to be a work ethic. There seems to be a lot, of, a lot of good things. Yeah, it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag, and who knows? Who knows? You know, 
I'm, I'm turning into one of those old guys that said, when I was a kid, it was like, I had to chop wood before I went to school. We didn't have any psychological problems, <laughs> um, whatever. But um, yeah, it's just the returning of those things is most problematic to me. Um, racism kind of building, rearing its ugly head. You know, a lot of things were under the rocks, the crawly things, you know, and then all of a sudden the rock was thrown open and people would be embarrassed to say what they believed 20 years ago, right? Because it was hip to be kind of cool, but now it's it's okay to go, well, you know, then they're saying things that aren't so cool. And it's kind of, it's being allowed. Do you think those uncool things are more apparent today than they were in the past? Or it's just, you're, you're more aware of it? Are they more apparent? No, I think they got better for a little while. From Blink, they got better after the, Vietnam War and the hippie movement, the first hippie movement, and things seemed to get better for a while. It was community-oriented stuff. And it seemed better, and then it slowly, you know, turned around. Just a gradual decline backwards. You know, is it a decline backwards? Some people would say, no, I think it is. I think we could run into some trouble. I think bad things could happen unless we change um, our approach and how we, I mean, the country is so divided right now. And, it, and I feel like I'm a member of a 50-50 club. And the other 50 club scares the shit out of me. And But I'm only 50%, if that, you know. Um, so there's a great divide right now. And that's pretty scary to me. I wonder how real that divide actually is. Because I've slipped into that mindset occasionally of, you know, I'm definitely afraid of where we are as a country and the path that we are on. But I don't, I think that most people fall into that. I think most people realize political polarization is reaching a, a tipping point. But mm -hmm. I don't think most people would disagree if they got in a room together and talked about a difficult topic. I think most people would say, oh yeah, you know, we might have different opinions, we might have different views, but I don't hate you. You're still a person, you're my neighbor, I care for you. Mm -hmm. But if you look online, that doesn't translate. And I think a lot of people are looking online and then thinking, well, shit, this country's gonna burn. I hope you're right. <laughs> I really do. And you probably are right, because that's where I'm looking online. Um, my world is pretty small here, really, you know, so. Um, I hope we pull it together. I really do. Um, it's hard not to feel like, uh, the enemy's on the other side in a way, you know? I mean, so, it, you know, the second amendment stuff is always a vague threat on the other side, which is like, what's up with that? You know, yeah, we got guns. So do we, you know what I mean? It's like, that's always looming. This is like, this another level of like, uh, Threat in the old days, it was <clears throat> like the SLL, SLA. Remember them, mm -mm. Symbionese Liberation Army, uh, the Weathermen. I have heard of the Weathermen. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not 100 familiar with what they were about. Well, they were they were uh, radicals bombing uh, 
labs that were doing testing for, you know, stupid stuff or whatever. And uh, the SLA kidnapped Patty Hearst. And uh, do you remember that? A little before my time, maybe. It was a little before your time, but it's from the Hearst. It was enormous. But the left was considered crazy and kind of violent in those days. They were, they were out there, the Black Panthers, you know. They were going, like, we're coming after you. Um, I think, and that wasn't good, but it, it kind of was effective in some ways, but it's kind of the other way around. I think the left side is kind of scared of the right, almost physically now, because there's always these threats. And I'm scared of both extremes. <laughs> yeah. I think both extremes, if you got, I mean, I've seen so many videos of, I mean, you want to talk about left-wing people just beating the shit out of random people just walking down the street at some of those protests. And I'm sure it happens on the right, too. They're, when you get to the extreme of the political aisle, people just go crazy. Can I say that pen? Oh, yeah. Do you want a piece of paper, too? You can say, are you trying to tell me something? Oh, yeah. We can we could wrap it if you like. We've done an hour and a half. Oh, we have? Yeah. Well, that was fun, wasn't it? It was a blast. Yeah. Thank you for coming on and talking with me. I enjoyed it. We got all, we got our auto lost subjects. Did yeah, we, we bounced about, around a little bit. Did we talk about boxing at all? Well, we could throw that in right now. We uh, talked about a little bit uh, about boxing, but that's how I found you was the lab, uh-huh. which how long, how long had that started? Oh, did you just recently start doing that? It's been a c- couple of years, um, but I started off slow. Um, just building it up. Yeah, it's 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 a small small gym. Um, like I say, the women have come out like crazy. I'm teaching a bunch of privates, but it's been a lot of fun, and um, I love teaching people. I don't have ten years to to turn you into a black belt, but I can teach you a lot of the principles with boxing and stretch your stretch your limits a little bit. Get you started on the right track. Yeah, yeah. Um. Well, Gary, this was a lot of fun, man. I yeah, really me appreciate too. you coming Thanks, on. Nick. We'll Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having yeah. me. Do you want to plug where people can find you, where they can find the lab if they want to join up? Can you just put a link? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that'll be fine. Okay. The do you want to say, do you have a website? I know you have a I Facebook don't. page. I don't. I just use my Facebook page. Facebook page yeah. is just the lab. Eureka. The lab. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, Gary, really, this was a lot of fun, man. Yeah, Thanks. me too. I had it fun. Thanks for having me. Yep. Whoops. There you go. All right. Thanks, guys.